they look at the period as their monthly wellness indicator. So they know how to look at the color, the texture, the flow, the number of days, your state of mental you know, emotions and figure out how their overall health is based on that. And then make the necessary lifestyle changes to come back to wellness again. And they're not even aware that they're doing it. They, it's just common knowledge. Appreciate, don't appropriate the gifts our ancestors did create. We're all in this together to understand true wellness better. Hello and welcome to Decolonizing Wellness, the podcast a place for people who want to engage in wellness practices with integrity. I'm your host, Jyoti, and I'm the founder of my wellness company, a yoga teacher, menstrual cycle coach, holistic wellness educator, and eternal student. Now, the wellness space is rooted in cultural appropriation, in whitewashing, in westernization, and it's completely disregarded the origins and roots of the wellness practices that it profits from. My own journey of decolonizing wellness and decolonizing my mind has been and continues to be revolutionary. And that's why I've created this podcast a safe space to explore indigenous wellness practices with the people from the cultures that they originate from. We're going to be delving into the history and roots of the practices, how we can appreciate rather than appropriate, and how, once we know better, we can and must do better. Hello and welcome to the Decolonizing Wellness podcast. I have an incredible guest with me today who is called Sinul Joseph, who is the co-founder and managing trustee of My Three Speaks Trust. She has done extensive action research in the areas of menstrual and reproductive health since 2009 and traveled across rural India, interacting with thousands of adolescent girls and women directly to get a first-hand experience of menstrual practices and their impact on women's health. Stepping aside from the popular narratives which focus on menstrual products, her work explored native methods, cultural practices around menstruation and the science behind it. And Sinu has written extensively on unearthing the science behind native practices and bringing forth a unique narrative which is um, she's written about in her book, Ruttu Vidya, The Ancient Science Behind Menstrual Practices. It's the culmination of her decade-long work on menstruation, which equips the reader to scientifically decode cultural practices. Wow, that's quite um, an impressive bio there, Sinuji. Hello and welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Namaste, Jyotiji, and everyone who's tuned in. Namaste. Thank you for inviting me. I'm doing very well and I'm happy to uh, have this discussion with you. Thank you, Jyotiji. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, it would be great to start actually with a cycle check-in. So it would be lovely to know um, what cycle day you're on and, yeah, how you're feeling. <laughs> well, so this is uh, 
a week before my period. So I plan my talks in such a way that it does not happen during the period week and also a few days before that, because then, uh, well, I'm in a different zone and I'd like to be quieter then. I'd like to be more introspective. So <laughs> that is why I do it. But that's where I am. And it is the end of uh, a, a work day for me. So I'm a little tired, but I'm enthusiastic about this conversation. <laughs> and I look forward to it. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. And I think... It was so great actually, because when we were emailing and I, you know, we suggested dates back and forth, you know, you said, oh, I can't do that day. I'll be on my period. And it's so great to see someone who's actually living the work that, they're, that they've put out into the world. Um, and then again, you know, we were meant to record and then I was on my period and had really bad pains and we were able to reschedule. And it was very refreshing to be able to have that conversation without feeling worried that you know you would be annoyed that I'd rescheduled or anything like that so thank you for your for your patience oh, oh, with Jyoti that. Ji, I don't understand that I can never expect anyone else to <laughs> my entire work comes from me walking the talk I have not written a single thing that I have not done or have not understood from my personal experience if not mine that of other women so uh, I'm just so happy that we could work around our cycles and still find a time that's common to both of us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you're so right. It's so, I think it's so refreshing to meet people who do walk their talk and practice, you know, what they preach with integrity. Um, so I guess on that, it would be really interesting to know your, um, well, when you were younger, was this something that was of interest to you? Did you think, you know, 10 or 15 year old Sinuji, or did she think, yes, this is what I'll be doing when I'm older? How did it all come about? Oh, definitely not. Uh, I was like any other teenager in India or in the UK who was embarrassed about staining, about boys finding out. And, you know, that's the thing. In all the conversations, there is this assumption that it is only adolescents in uh, developing countries who go through these. But uh, I've known, and since I've interacted with menstrual researchers across the globe, I've realized that it is the same thing with all teenagers everywhere. <laughs> We've all experienced the same fear, the same embarrassment. So in those days, in those moments, we definitely never thought that, <laughs> well, I never imagined that this would be my area of work. Um, I got my first period when I was 11 and a half, Jyotiji. And I think I, at that time, I thought I was the only girl in class who got her period. And I remember a friend of mine now giving me this really wise advice. <laughs> she apparently read in some magazines that boys also get their period. It's just that it's white in color. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, oh, she's so knowledgeable. So that was the extent of my knowledge on this subject when I was growing up. <laughs> oh, wow. That's amazing. Um, and I also got my period when I was quite young. I was, I think I was, had just turned 11, but I was still in primary school. Um, so yeah, I relate to kind of thinking that you're the only person that's got it. And it's, it can be quite difficult, I think, when you're, when you're that young, especially. True. True. So then how did you move from kind of, you know, this place where 
perhaps you didn't fully understand what what periods were and i don't think many of us do um even if we do learn about them at school we learn i know definitely here in in the uk we learn about them in a very scientific way but in a way that makes them feel like they're not really happening in our bodies even though they are it you feel very detached from it um i don't know you know what the how it is in India, and I imagine it's different in different parts of India, because of course it's such a big country. Um, but yeah, how was your experience of learning about it at school, and then how did you get into where you are now? So that's such an interesting question now, and I like the core of what you're asking me about how the scientific way of learning about it just disconnects it from our body. It's it's like something that's going on, something that you need to overcome something that you need to uh, put up with and you know just move on and act as if it does not exist does not happen make your body more male like <laughs> uh, so mm. make it more of a non menstruating thing don't crib uh, don't talk about it this is what we are taught in the name of menstrual education so you see sometime uh, i uh, uh, about 11 years ago I started working in the social space and uh, I was teaching a group of children. I was teaching them spoken English and in my class of around 40, there were just two or three girls. And there was one day where one particular girl stopped coming to school for about 12 to something between 12 to 16 days. I thought she dropped out, but then she did come back. And when I asked her what happened, she said, oh, I had my menarche celebration. And I said, what? <laughs> so uh, that was very new to me because I was raised in a Catholic family and I was quite unfamiliar with the practices among Hindu women. So that was new. And uh, I asked her more about it. And the way she spoke about it, it was so different from my own uh, idea of it being something that is shameful or to be hidden then she explained how so all the family members were present for the celebration the men were there the boys were there and it was 12 to 16 wow. days of uh, their idea of uh, celebrating this little girl entering womanhood uh, but i did not understand all of this then it's now in retrospect that i'm looking back <laughs> What I thought then was that they need to have menstrual education. So I became the one who initiated those sessions for girls in government-run schools, especially in villages. So uh, a, co a colleague of mine, YJNPG and I, so we just went out to villages and started talking about this. And at that time, the name we coined was menstrual hygiene because that was the popular uh, way of talking of it. And it was all yeah. driven, product driven. And I, it took me a while to realize how actually it's not product driven, it's agenda driven. <laughs> so uh, in this entire space of menstrual hygiene, the word hygiene itself is an artificially created need in order to dump products in newer markets. And I realized uh, villages in India were looked at as unexplored newer markets. Because when I attended finally a conference in Boston in 2015, I realized that the same people who come and give products of sa like sanitary napkins, especially to our village girls, are talking about sustainable menstruation and going back to cloth for the women in their own countries. 
and I mean women in the US, women in the UK, women across Australia, they're talking about sustainable menstruation and cloth. And what were women in our villages doing? Well, they were using cloth. So <laughs> I just, that's when the whole hypocrisy and the agenda-driven attitude of this movement hit me. And I realized they're creating a need where none exists by forcibly making our women feel shameful about a process that in fact our women knew much more holistically. And that brings me to the point you asked about how do Indian women actually look at it, right? In one sentence, if I have to tell you, they look at the period as their monthly wellness indicator. So they know how to look at the color, the texture, the flow, the number of days, your state of mental you know, emotions and figure out how their overall health is based on that. And then make the necessary lifestyle changes to come back to wellness again. And they're not even aware that they're doing it. They, it's just common knowledge. So if a young girl bleeds excessively a particular month, her grandmother will ask her, did you have too much curd? <laughs> or did you eat fish this month when you had your period? And she says, yes, her grandmother is like, oh, that's why it happened. Because curd and fish increase the body heat, which we call pitta. And pitta causes you to bleed more heavily. <laughs> So if someone's had really scanty menstruation, the wise lady in the village would ask her, did you eat something really cold? Did you eat an ice cream? If you did, then that's why it happened. So this knowledge of observing your period and understanding what caused the changes and then using that decoded wisdom to improve your overall health, it just comes naturally to our women and it comes in the form of the cultural practices. And what we were mm. introducing formally in the name of menstrual hygiene was just taking them away from this inherent wisdom and cultural grounding that the women had. You know, uh, in, the, in the decade or so that I worked on this subject, I reached a point after the Boston conference where I thought, am I wrong? Or Because what I was seeing on ground was that our women were healthier. They were having fewer mm. menstrual disorders. But at the conference, they projected us as poor, suffering women from, you know, a developing world. And I thought, let me get my facts right. Let me do a ground level survey. So my team and I, we interviewed more than a thousand women. I personally conducted interviews of around 300 women. Each woman's interview was an hour long. We had a 72 point questionnaire. And you know what, what wow. it revealed in the end? that our women had not more than 15 to 20% of menstrual disorders. And you compare this, women in UK, by the way, 50% of them have heavy menstrual bleeding. Hmm. In Australia, they did the study called the MDOT study, and they found that 94% adolescents had dysmenorrhea or period pain. So that's when I started also looking at the research, not just what I did on ground, but existing published papers. And when I made the comparative analysis, I realized how whatever I learned on ground, actually the papers also revealed that no one's just bothering to make those comparisons. Because when you say hygiene, you wash your hands of any responsibility of it being a real issue. The real parameter is health and disorders. 
If you just look at the prevalence of menstrual disorders among women in US and UK and Australia, compare it with the prevalence of disorders of women in India or Kenya or Ghana or Nigeria, you will know where the real issue is. <laughs> and mm. who are the nations that hold the true wisdom and the holistic understanding of the subject? It would become very evident. But researchers only compare developing countries with other developing countries. Hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I think, um, like for me, having obviously grown up in England, but as a as an Indian person, and my mum's from India, um, so she has much of this knowledge and wisdom that you talk about. And even my daddy, who used to live with us before she passed away, um, a lot of these things would just naturally come to them. I think I never realised what Ayurveda was, to be honest, for a very long time. But when I started learning more formally what it is, I realized, oh, my mom always says that, or my dad they used to <laughs> say that, because it's so ingrained into our culture. And I think the same with, with yoga, like when I went to India to learn, and I, they said certain things, I'd be like, oh yeah, like I do that, or like I've always done that, or, you know, but because it's not, we're not, as we learn it, you know, my mom wasn't there going, this is Ayurveda Jyoti and this is yoga and, and these kinds of things. I didn't always realize how ingrained into Indian and South Asian culture a lot of these practices are. Um, so yeah, I definitely resonate with that and, and agree that there's, a, there's an issue with the way the West, well, they always try to make themselves look better, let's be honest, and the way they'll compare things. Um, so if we take like a moment now to um to go a bit further into your book which has been absolutely transformational for me and i know for other people as well um like i'd just like to take a moment actually to thank you for writing this book um and if anyone listening hasn't read it i cannot recommend enough going to buy it um and for me like it was it was almost an indescribable feeling to read a book by someone who looks like me, first of all, that doesn't happen very often, and who's talking about these things that have affected me or those around me or I've heard about. Um, and I guess to start to really understand and to put the pieces together, like a lot of things just suddenly clicked for me as I was reading, reading your book, um, to understand the science, but also the, um, I guess like the reasoning behind why some of these cultural practices are done, these things that I've always thought were very backwards, so to speak, in inverted commas, but actually realizing that there is a reason behind many of these cultural practices that we can feel are, are belittling towards women or, or whatever kind of word you want to use, um, but to actually realize that they're, they're not, they're probably actually more empowering than we realize. Um, and I know in your book, you kind of talk about the menstrual cycle and each phase according to um, Ayurveda and how the dosha imbalances can affect our cycle. So would you be able to give like a brief summary of how, um, how these work? Like I know there's, there's a lot to it, um, but yeah, a brief summary, I guess, of menstruation through the lens of Ayurveda would be amazing. Um, sure, Jyoti Ji, and uh, thank you for talking about my book, Ruthu Vidya. Um, I'm 
really touched that you took to it and you related it to it so well. So the core of, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the foundation of the knowledge in Ayurveda is based on our direct perception of whatever is science. So you see in our Indian knowledge systems, when we say science, it is not just limited to external observations and research on things outside of us that is also included, but we also include what we call pratyaksha anubhava, which means your direct experience. And that is the tool that is available for every person who connects to this knowledge stream to understand a science of the subtle body. We call it the sukshma sharira. The word sukshma means subtle and sharira is body. So that is what we mean when we say science. It is not just of the gross physical anatomy, but also of the subtle anatomy. And Ayurveda excels in providing the language to have this experience of the sukshma sharira. Not just the language, but they also guide us. And I think uh, observing the menstrual blood is one of those finest examples of how Ayurveda empowers women to take charge of their overall health. And because it is so important, and although it might take some time, it is very interesting, and I'm going to share that now. <laughs> So, so according to Ayurveda, all humans are a combination of three doshas. We call them doshas. There is the vata dosh, which has the qualities of the element of air and wind. We have the pitta dosh, which has the quality largely of the element of fire. And then we have the kapha dosh which has the qualities of the elements of earth and water. So when we say earth and water, we are not to literally understand it as earth and water. And that's why I'm saying the quality of earth and water. For example, a person who is predominantly vata prakriti. Prakriti means body constitution. So if someone is predominantly vata prakriti, they are in physically... Because this is a manifestation of the quality of air, they would be, they would have personalities which are very airy in nature. So that means a mind that is quite unstable, always fluctuating. They feel restless and anxious quite often. And because they move like the wind, they also talk like the wind. They talk very fast. They can't slow down. <laughs> <laughs> I can think of a few people. <laughs> you always find them fidgeting with something or the other. They're very restless because they have the wind, they have the quality of air. So that's the vata prakriti, how that plays out in our personality. And then we have those who might have the pitta dominant prakriti. And because pitta has the element of fire, it makes them like the fire. <laughs> so one of the characteristic qualities of people with pitta prakriti is a very short temper. <laughs> they get angry very fast and in that mode of anger they would become judgmental but it is fire, it is agni that is also the core quality of intelligence of leadership. So these are people who can digest a lot of complex information 
and put it out. And that's how they become leaders. They communicate well. But if the pitta is not treated or taken care of, they could have short temper. They could feel exhausted very easily. Their body type would be, you know, athletic, unlike the vata type who are more skinny. So this is about pitta. And if, you, if someone is of the kapha, uh, predominantly kapha dosha, because it has the elements of earth and water, they are generally heavier in body structure. So they might be shorter and stouter. So if you tell a person of kapha uh, prakriti to exercise and become thinner, it is actually not even possible for them because they are inherently of a certain body type. So kapha people, they are of a very friendly, relaxed uh, nature. They don't get angry like the pitta people. They don't get restless like the vata people. They're just easygoing people, best friends. <laughs> now you feel very comforted in their presence. And they have a natural uh, fertility. If they are healthy, they are very, very fertile. They have great stamina, great endurance because their body type is the kind that is physically strong. So these sort of people and women will make very good uh, athletes, very good uh, uh, you know, sports that require maybe heavy lifting or boxing uh, so, or marathoners because they have great endurance, great stamina. So if, if we knew our type of our body type, our prakriti, we can basically make the most sensible decision for our careers, for the people we meet and for the way we live our life. Mm. Now, when it comes to menstruation is the interesting bit. Ayurveda gives us insights into how, based on your prakriti, your blood flow, the quality would be different. It also tells us that in a particular month, Let's say just before my period this month, I traveled a lot. Then I would have an aggravation of vata dosha because vata is all about movement. If I did excessive exercise just before or during my period, I would have a vata dominant period. If I ate very spicy or sour food or food that was, you know, red meat and hard to digest, I would have excess heat in my body. So I would have a pitta dominant period that month. So how do you know if your menstrual blood has a particular quality, which is predominant? You observe its color, you observe its flow, you observe its texture, and you observe your mood. So if the period is very scanty and the color of the blood is dark brown, if your mood accompanying that flow is restless and anxious, that means there is a vata aggravation. You've probably done excessive physical work or you've had food that is very cold or other types of food that aggravate vata dosha, such as potato or all roots. Basically, they aggravate vata dosha. So if you've had excessive of that just before your period, your period quality would be this way. You know, uh, there are studies out there, published studies, which show how athletes are now, they're recognizing something called athletic amenorrhea. Amenorrhea is basically delayed or absence of periods for six months or more. And why does it happen? The modern science does not know. They only see that this condition exists. But why? 
When vata is aggravated to such an extent, it goes from scanty menstruation to a stoppage of menstrual flow. Because the, the flow of the menstrual blood within the body is influenced by vata dosha. When you aggravate it by excessive exercise and training just before or during your period, you could have these sort of problems. So you see how well we understood the problem and the cause. <laughs> and then mm. if you look at similarly pitta, uh, if, you are, uh, if you've had a pitta aggravation, you will actually have heavy bleeding. So when I read that 50% of women in the UK have heavy menstrual bleeding, it is evidence of the heavy consumption of meat, of alcohol, uh, of smoking, because all of these increase pitta. All of these increase pitta. And it shows in the personality because they will be more aggressive, more angry, more judgmental. So you see, in uh, those who know Ayurveda actually never judge a person by the way they speak. They always know that, oh, there's a dosha imbalance and it can be fixed. <laughs> they sound judgmental, <laughs> but if you just give them some tender coconut water, they would cool down and become nicer people. We know that. <laughs> so, so these measures are in place. That is what Ayurveda gives us. And I've elaborated that on my book for us to simply look at our period and know what to watch out for so that we prevent it from snowballing into a menstrual disorder. So that's, that's how deep mm -hmm. this whole knowledge is. And I really just touched, on, touched upon the surface of it. <laughs> yeah, it's so fascinating and how I think, again, in, in the West, we forget how much food can influence our bodies and how you know, that food has different qualities beyond like protein and carbohydrates and calories, which is how it's looked upon. Because I remember again, being younger and my mum saying, don't eat too many cashew nuts, otherwise you'll get a nosebleed because they're really warm. And I thought, what is this woman going on about? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. But now since kind of understanding Ayurveda more, it makes a lot more sense because foods are warming or cooling and, and so on, as you, as you mentioned. Um, so yeah, it's it's so interesting for me to finally understand these this wisdom really that our ancestors held um, and that we have access to is is amazing. And also, I think the fact that our bodies are so clever and they they are able to to adjust depending on I guess what we need, and also that they have this inner wisdom that if we just stopped and listened and also understood how to do that there's like there's such a wealth of knowledge that comes from within us that yeah that we don't often realize or we don't have access to or we're taught very much to look outside ourselves um especially as women um for all the answers rather than understanding that that the you know that they are within absolutely jyoti ji i mean and you've just touched the problem at its core we are never encouraged to look within and if a woman by mistake does that, she is called uh, superstitious or <laughs> I don't know what, because they, they encourage us to not trust our body's experiences, to not rely on our intuition, because we are told that that is insufficient evidence. <laughs> mm. Yes, exactly, exactly. And I think through my personal like journey within yoga and, and things, that's something I've really come to realize that sometimes that is just enough. Like we don't need to have looked outside ourselves and have 
exact facts and figures because again everyone's so different and everyone experiences things so different especially things like menstruation you know how it's not a one-size-fits-all approach which is where again Ayurveda is so amazing because it's very differentiated and it gets to the root of the problem rather than thinking about you know the how we can just fix it in the short term I suppose very true very true so um i think it would be good to speak about kind of the the colonization or the decolonization hopefully now of the of the menstrual cycle so this podcast is called decolonizing wellness and i mean there's many parts of the menstrual cycle i think um that you've touched upon that have kind of been colonized or have been have been expressed in a way as we were saying before to to be disempowering towards women when actually i think if we understand them they can be much more empowering and perhaps the practices have been taken out of context they're seen as like bad or not progressive um so i suppose um you know what does decolonizing the cycle look like or feel like or mean to you and could you give perhaps a couple of examples? I know you give some incredible ones in your book about these practices that have been taken out of context and perhaps why and, and why we actually do them, why they were there in the first place. Yeah, um, that's an excellent question. And there are so many angles to it and so many ways <laughs> of answering. But I just want to uh, state here that it is not just a knowledge rooted in Ayurveda or in India alone. Just about every what we, what you call <laughs> a pagan culture around the world had similar practices. And they all stemmed from women's knowing, uh, women knowing the experiences of their body and how it relates to nature and simply being in sync with nature and observing that. And when en masse these women were told that what they know is pseudoscience, when they were destroyed, killed as witches, as so many in, in so many other names, that is when it died out from most of the rest of the world. In India, we are just so fortunate that our mothers and our grandmothers quietly preserved this tradition and just passed it on from generation to generation. So much of what I've written in my book is not something that's written in the textbooks as such. I used Ayurveda to decode it. But so many, like the Menarche celebration, I've not found it in any of our Shastras or Vedas or Ayurveda. It's not mentioned. And it's different for every community. It is entirely an oral tradition that has been passed on from generation to generation. And Menarche celebrations, I recently found out when I spoke to women from other countries, used to happen in Ghana. They used to happen in Sri Lanka, still does to quite an extent. Even in China, they used to have similar celebrations. Philippines, Vietnam, all of us who were colonized, we used mm. to have this connect with nature. We used to have this inherent understanding of these processes as something to be celebrated, something to be revered. 
and the more our women, our people have been conditioned out of it or even, you know, physically destroyed, that knowledge vanished. So decolonizing for me is for each of us to connect back to our roots, to go back and speak to our grandmothers and all the elderly women in our villages, because so much is not even found in books. If there is an old woman in your village, please fall at her feet as we do in India to show respect. <laughs> so touch her feet and request her to teach us. That's what happened to me. I went to villages thinking that I will teach them. But I realized that I have no idea what they're talking about. And here were women who I needed to learn from. And that's the biggest shift we have to make. We have to first mentally decolonize before even we get the words that decolonize you know, what we have to express, we have to mentally decolonize as to who should we learn from. Mm, yes. It's not the universities of today. It is not the research papers of today. Certainly never the activists of today. <laughs> it is those indigenous women in the villages across the world who are the repositories of this knowledge. The minute we acknowledge that, the minute we get into the mode of learning from them, that is the first step of decolonization. The rest just follows. And I'll tell you one of those things. I just just to give an example because this is so commonly stated, and I know I've known that across pagan cultures, this idea was there that menstrual blood is impure, or that menstruation is a process that makes women impure. What is the truth behind it? And during my sessions for girls in villages. I would ask them, how many of you think it's impure? And well, the entire class would just, you know, put their hand up. And then I would ask them, why do you think it's impure? And in their own childish way, they would say that, oh, it removes toxins from the body. So then I would ask them, what happens to boys? Do they get to keep all their toxins? <laughs> <laughs> and then they would scratch their innocent little heads and they did not know how to answer. What I was trying to do was to make them think. What do we mean by this toxin? And why is this language of menstrual blood is impure so common across our villages and among our women and among women I recently found out in other pagan cultures as well. So the idea, at least in Ayurveda, I, I have this language and I can express it in that language. You see, when we consume food, not all of it is digested. The human body cannot digest certain types of food naturally. Fruits we take to very naturally. The body digests, the body is very happy. That's why if one were to go on a fruit diet, their skin would glow because that is the fuel that the human body is fit for eating. It's happiest having that. But when we put in meat, which we don't even have teeth to chew actually, <laughs> so that's a clear indication of what humans can and can't do, nor do we have claws to hunt that animal and kill it so that's not food that's natural to us so when we eat that or we eat food that's heavily processed what happens only a portion of it gets digested and assimilated and absorbed a portion of it is excreted but there would be a large amount of it which simply sits in the intestine and rots so there is a process of rotting happening within your body because of improper digestion. 
When it rots like that, it releases what Ayurveda calls armor. AMA, armor. These are internal toxins which are responsible for just about every kind of disease as they, acu as they accumulate. We experience armor on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of frequent gastric upsets. That is armor there. Uh, if someone has loose bowel movements, that is armor trying to get out of your lower gastrointestinal tract. If you have nausea and vomiting and belching all the time, that's armor trying to get out from your upper digestive tract. If you have very bad skin and acne, that is armor trying to break through from your skin. So armor is something that the body must not accumulate. For that, we should eat right. And after a certain age, we need to include exercise that improves our metabolism when our natural metabolism slows down so that digestion is improved. Now, if armor were to be accumulated and accumulated, accumulated, not only would we have all kinds of diseases, but at an advanced stage, it would lead to infertility. So if uh, a lot of couples who are taking treatment for infertility, in the Western world, one of the things they do is detox. And we've heard of the popular couple, your royal couple, who apparently also did a detox before they had their, before they were married. And that's how she con conceived. That is the news that I've heard. I could be wrong. But in the Ayurveda also, we have a detox process. And uh, those who are struggling to conceive are put through it. What happens in that detox is that they basically uh, help flush out the ama. It could be by inducing vomiting. It could be inducing uh, bowel movements through anema. It, it is through the nasal congestion, the ama accumulated, which we experience as sinusitis, sinus-related problems, uh, getting that out. So this is what the Ayurveda detox treatment does. And the minute they go through this process and the ama is out of their system, they conceive naturally. If the reason for not being able to conceive was ama, just a detox process does wonders. But guess what? Month after month, women are given a natural free detox through menstruation. That is basically what it is. So the more women have ama accumulated, the more they experience period problems. Cramps is basic cramps during menstruation is basically ama coming out and you are experiencing it as a gastric issues. So that's why the Rantac and the other anti-acid tablets help for women going through that. Uh, during menstruation, women who experience loose bowel movements or nausea uh, and vomiting or you know uh, acne, it is all an indication of how much ama you have accumulated and stored in your system. Mm. The minute you get rid of that ama, your period problems are gone magically, just vanish. I've lost count of the number of women who have understood this and simply by changing their diet and lifestyle, even if not every day, a week before the period and during the period, if you cut down on food that is hard to digest, if you increase your exercising, especially yoga, because typical gymming and running, if you are a vata person, it could further aggravate your vata, not solve the problem. That sort of exercising is good for kapha people. It balances out their heaviness. But for vata and pitta people, yoga, yoga, asana, pranayama is what is best. That will improve your metabolism and help you release ama on a daily basis. 
so that when your period strikes it does not strike <laughs> it just happens smoothly <laughs> yeah so the concluding thought is that this understanding that there is some impurity coming out of your system we may not be communicating it right but it is an evidence of a deeper knowledge of ama being released of menstruation being a detox process that your body goes through month after month and that is why women from indigenous communities have been saying this that menstruation you know has something to do with impurity it's not the blood that's impure it's not the woman who's impure but that the process of menstruation removes the internal impurities which we call ama in ayurveda Mm, yes. And when I read that in your book, it made a lot of sense. And I think for me, um, when I went to India and did my yoga teacher training, when I came back, um, I found that my periods were much less painful and the pain almost disappeared, which was incredible. Um, <laughs> and I, I mean, I've put it down to the fact that I was doing a lot more asan and pranayam and, and those things. And whilst we were there, we were doing the nasal cleansing, the neti pots and, and all of that kind of stuff. Yes. And I also had gone vegetarian. Um, so I think that definitely helped. Um, so, yeah, I think it's so, so interesting. Yes, so, 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 so you've had what we would call a pratyaksha anubhava, a direct experience and we call that we consider that a valid proof of knowledge <laughs> so you've had that absolutely yes um yeah and i notice like each month to month you know sometimes my periods are painful now when i do less asam practice or i've perhaps not eaten um in the best way like you said eaten foods that are harder to digest and things like that so yeah i think you're right making those those lifestyle changes can be so, um, so incredible. Um, and I guess on that, how could you, how would you suggest that perhaps we can, we can live more cyclically or more in sync with our cycles and how can we really start to appreciate them and see them as, as a gift really, rather than a hindrance? Yes, that's so important because if women really understood how it's, menstruation is not just about the, three, four or seven days that you bleed, but about your entire monthly cycle and how each week your body and your mind has a certain capacity for certain sort of work. And if you can understand that and plan around that, you would be brilliant. And you can take a menstrual leave, it won't affect your productivity because you would be, you know, like a superwoman on all the other days. <laughs> <laughs> so, and that's what I do. I take a menstrual leave, but I don't take Sundays or other days off because the body does not recognize a Sunday. <laughs> but the body does. <laughs> but your body and mind does recognize your period because that's when your hormones are flat and you don't simply, you simply don't have the energy to do certain sort types of work. And that is when your physical body needs rest, not a Sunday. Nothing happens to your hormones on a Sunday. <laughs> right? so, so let me quickly take you through what happens each week of our menstrual cycle. And when we recognize that, how we can plan our work and life around it to whatever extent possible. Just becoming aware of it does wonders, actually. Mm. So uh, the days when we're actually bleeding, when the menstrual flow is on, those are the days when naturally there's a dominance of vata dosh and pitta dosh. 
This is in the language of Ayurveda. Vatadosh is your creative energy. So if you are healthy, periods are the time when all your creative aha moments happen. <laughs> and if you're unhealthy, that becomes a very restless space. But if you're healthy, every single idea I've had that is creative, whether including the name of the book, Rutu Vidya, what I should write in certain chapters where I was having a typical writer's block, it all came to me when I was menstruating. That's your highly creative, intuitive phase. That's what Vata Dosh can do for you if you can tune into that. So becoming silent and tuning into those creative energies of Vata Dosh is what we need to do when we menstruate. The day soon after our period is when there's a dominance of Kapha Dosh. Now Kapha is what gives us our inherent strength builds our immunity, our fertility. So as per Ayurveda, the day when your period ends up to the next you know, uh, 14 odd days is when you must attempt to conceive because Kapha is highest and you're the most fertile at that time. Kapha is also that which gives you the strength for physical work. It is also that which makes your mind very stable. So a highly emotional menstruating woman suddenly calms down and is serene after her period. What happened to her? <laughs> <laughs> what happened was that Kapha Dosha took over. The restlessness of Vata Dosha, the heat of Pitta Dosha was gone, balanced by this calming, strengthening, stable energy of Kapha Dosha. So all the major presentations that you have to do, all the physical work, the training, the traveling, Plan that in the week just after your period. That's the best time for it. You would come across as a very level-headed, stable, warm, friendly, nice person. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the time to plan those sort of things. Then comes the week which we recognize as ovulation. And this is something at least I think in modern science also they understand. So ovulation is a major transformative process in the body. And for any sort of transformation to happen, Pitta Dosha comes into play. So Pitta has this very bold sexual energy. That's your body's way of telling you to, hey, work on reproducing. The egg is ready and you are ready. So get going. You know, so if we are aware of it, Pitta Dosha gives you great energy to work. You also feel more intelligent. You're capable of digesting complex ideas, thoughts, your communication improves during that time. And you also want to go out there and meet more people. So I am in that phase of my <laughs> cycle in a lot of ways. So that is why I'm comfortable talking. I feel like talking. I feel like sharing knowledge with all of you today. You know, so that's your Pitta phase. You naturally feel confident. You naturally feel like a very outgoing extrovert person. You want to go and meet people. So use that phase for those sort of um, that type of work where you need to communicate, meet people. The week just before the period, what we roughly call as PMS, that is the time where there's a buildup for menstruation to, have, to occur. So Vata Dosh is slowly beginning to build, but also the Pitta that was useful in ovulation now can really shoot up as we near menstruation. So women who have cravings, either it's certain food cravings like chocolates or coffee or fried items 
or it's a craving for excess indulgence in sexual activity, all of that indicates an imbalance in pitta dosha just before your period. If you manage the week before your period well with the right diet and yoga, you should not have those cravings. And PMS will actually become your most intuitive, beautiful face. Because when pitta is high, it tells you everything that is going wrong with your life. It kind of just, it gives you this mental clarity. And everything that you've been struggling to understand, you just have this immense clarity of what is not working for you. Now, if you're not aware of it, this is the time of great conflicts because you drop the mask. <laughs> you don't brush things under the carpet. You say it like it is. So that's why people say, oh, are you PMSing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but what it is doing is that it is bringing you immense clarity. And if you understood that, and if you learn to trust what your pitta is telling you in your PMS time, this is a time of great transformation. You will make major moves in your life because you suddenly can no longer deny that this is the problem. This person or this thing is what is going wrong. Pitta makes it very clear to you. And then you, you, know, you close certain things that are not healthy for you. Then you go into menstrual rest which you just allowing your body and mind to rest and relax and you press the refresh and restart button again after your period. So every month you actually get to become a different person. Major problems in your life can just be resolved if you understand this and work in sync with the doshas that are naturally dominant week after week. Isn't it beautiful? Mm, it really is. I think oh, it's it's so beautiful it's so fascinating and uh, it's so empowering to think that as as women and people who menstruate we have this ability and we're able to hopefully tap into it every month um and yeah i guess become become a different version of ourselves and perhaps a more truer version of ourselves or you know whatever version we need for that for that cycle for that month or so um which yeah is is fascinating. Oh, I could speak to you all day, Sinuji. There's so many more questions I wish I could ask, but we have run out of well, time. I, I, I'm in the I'm in the right week where I might also just speak to you all day. <laughs> <laughs> Next week I wouldn't be this way. Oh, well, thank you so much um, for joining me. It's been a real pleasure to to hear all your knowledge and to to get to speak to you it's um a little bit surreal to speak to a to an author um where can our listeners connect with you how can they learn more about your work and so on thank you jyoti ji for inviting me i've just loved this conversation with you uh, so my book is available on all major uh, platforms where you buy books so you can look it up in amazon whichever part of the world you are it's also available as an ebook on Kindle, on um, iBooks, on Kobo, on Google Books, Google Play. I forgot what it was. Well, it's available there as an ebook. Um, I'm also available on Facebook and uh, Twitter. That's the extent of my social media presence. But if you just uh, Google my name or the name of my book, Ruthu Vidya, you will find that there are a lot of YouTube talks where I have explained pretty much the entire book in different videos. So if you're not much of a reading person and you prefer to listen, then you can um, listen to my talks on this subject. 
Amazing. Thank you so much. And I will put all of the links in the show notes as well so people can access them easier. So thank you once again, Sinuji. Thank you so much for joining us. And I hope I'll be able to speak to you soon. Namaste. Thank you, Jyoti Ji. Namaste. And I've loved this conversation. Look forward to another one in future. Namaste. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope that you enjoyed the episode and learned as much as I did. I would love to hear your top takeaways, your aha moments, or any thoughts and reflections. You can message me on Instagram at mywellnesscompany. You can email me hello at mywellnesscompany.co.uk or you can leave me a voice message at anchor.fm forward slash Jothi Chadder. I really would love to hear from you. If you're enjoying the podcast, I'd be so grateful if you could make sure you're subscribed and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, friends, stay curious, keep asking questions and keep taking up space. Looking at the roots on trees, not just eating fruit and taking the seeds. Appreciate, don't appropriate the gifts our ancestors did create. We're all